0: Grace, mercy, and peace are yours, from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, we'll start a new sermon series today that will take us through the course of the next five weeks. A sermon series called, Most Likely To. I know there are a lot of people hurting and facing difficulties through this coronavirus time. My heart goes out to all of them especially to our students and some of our our seniors particularly as the end of their school year, the end of their college career or high school career has has meant some major changes and some missing out on some things that they were looking forward to. Maybe through this sermon series, most likely to, we'll bring a little taste of the end of a school year uh, as we focus on Bible characters and how God used their lives for good and how he directs our lives for good as well. You know how that works, right? In a yearbook, the idea of most likely to, students are polled about their classmates and they come up with different things that each classmate might do, that they're most likely to do something. I've seen things like most likely to compose a song or write a novel, most likely to travel the world or start their own business, maybe even most likely to become president. Through the course of the next few weeks, we'll look at Bible characters Esther and Noah and Ruth and Samson and Mary and discover what they may have been voted most likely to do had their high school classmates voted them into those categories. Today, we're going to look at the story of Esther under the theme most likely to become queen. We'll see today how God took a Jewish girl named Cherasa, whom we know better as Esther, And made her queen of the most powerful empire of her day, the Persian Empire. How God guided her life to put her right where He needed her to be, and how He guides our lives as well. Today, under this idea of Esther being most likely to become queen, let's focus on words from her cousin Mordecai when he says, For such a time as this. And as we take a look at this story today, we will see that, first of all, Esther's story is God's story. But then we'll be able to relate how God uses Esther as we look at our own stories as well. The book of Esther is a fascinating book in the Old Testament scriptures. It takes place in the late 400s BC, probably in the Persian Empire, the height of the Persian Empire. It's fascinating because it tells the story of a misplaced Jewish orphan girl who is made queen of the most powerful nation on earth in her day. Some people have looked at the story of Esther in the Bible and looked at the book of Esther and wondered why it's there. After all, in the 10 chapters of the book of Esther, the name of God never appears one time. Not any reference to God's commandments, not any reference to any of the rituals or festivals of the Jewish faith. People also take note of the lack of personal piety on the, on, the ha- on the behalf of Mordecai and Esther in the story. But I don't think these are reasons for us to discount this story in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it proves all over again God's grace. That he can take any one of us, warts and all, and use us in his purpose and in the plan that he has for us. Even though the name of God is not present in the story of Esther, Let's take a look today as we go through the first four chapters of Esther and see how it is that God's hand is still there, how God is still present. And as we take a look especially, I'd like you to note how God is guiding salvation history, how he's fulfilling a promise, keeping preserved the promise that he was going to send through the Jewish nation a Savior, Jesus the Messiah. I would love for you to follow along today in your Bibles in Esther chapter 1 to 4. Uh, If you have a, a chance, will you go grab your Bibles now or use your Bible app? Here's the beauty of Video Church. You can pause and go get the Bible and I'll be waiting for you when you come back. Esther chapter 1 verse 4. Actually, the whole story of Esther is fascinating because it really hangs around five main people in the story. We're going to meet today King Xerxes, first of all. He is the king who rules this vast, vast kingdom of Persia. The Bible's portrayal of him fits very nicely into historical accounts of Xerxes, and we'll see in just a minute what that's all about. We meet Queen Vashti, a, a very small part in the story, but without her being deposed, the story would never have happened. And then we meet Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, who had adopted her as his own daughter. And then Esther, the girl that becomes queen. Finally, we meet Haman, the trusted noble of the king, who is really the villain in this story, as we'll see. Through all of these people, we're going to see God's hand guiding the history of Esther to deliver the promise that he had made to his people. There's a picture of the empire of the of of the Persians, you see that it stretches all the way from the Mediterranean Sea to the country of India, a a, a, a country that included 127 provinces, we're told, that Xerxes ruled over. Keep that in mind as we read through these first verses of chapter 1. I'd like you to read with me or follow along as we read Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Uh, These verses will set the background for the story that we're going to look at. Esther chapter one, verses one to 12. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces, provinces were present. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people, from the least to the greatest, were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material, to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Meheman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zether, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger." Could you see it? Could could you picture it as we read through it, the wealth of King Xerxes in his kingdom? I suppose we could call this six-month world's fair that he held a testimony to his own greatness. Yeah, we see his ego too, don't we? And at the end of that 180-day celebration of himself, Xerxes threw a banquet that lasted seven days. And here's where the story really begins. On the final day of that banquet, the revelry kind of came to a sour note when King Xerxes summoned Queen Vashti to appear before he and his other nobles. But she refused. The next thing we read about in the chapter is the conference that that the king has with his nobles. How is he supposed to react to Queen Vashti's disobedience? The conference ends with a recommendation of removal that queen vashti be deposed give give up her royal position and never appear before the king again and then a decree went along with it because the real fear was of the nobles was if the queen disobeys her husband in this way what's going to happen in the rest of the kingdom and so the decree was given that all wives respect their husbands that story of Xerxes and Vashti really sets us up for what happens in chapter 2. Will you take a look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, please? Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Harassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. I suppose you could say King Xerxes got lonely. He remembered Queen Vashti, remembered the good things that she had brought to his life and decided it was time to find a new queen. And so there was a proposal made by his nobles, a proposal that a search be made for his new queen. In true The Bachelor fashion, there was an audition of many girls throughout the kingdom. Esther too, because of her beauty, was chosen as one of those girls who would be in line to become queen. It is at this point that we meet Mordecai, uh, Esther's cousin, who has really become like her father, adopted her when her mother and father died. One of the things we're told about Mordecai is that he had told Esther to hide her identity. She kept it hidden from King Xerxes that she was Jewish. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But here's where we see God's hand in this whole process. She wins favor. Wins favor, first of all, with the man in charge of all of the women who were brought. But then she won favor with the king as well. And God made sure that Esther was chosen to be the next queen of Persia. During this time that Esther was being auditioned to become queen, Mordecai was outside, had a vested interest in what was happening to to Esther. And while he was there, he uncovered a plot, an assassination plot, plot against the life of King Xerxes. That plot and the uncovering of it was written down in the records, the annals of the king of Persia. Some people are bothered, as I said before, by the lack of piety that is displayed, the less than honest approach that both Esther and Mordecai took to her becoming queen. We could ask the question, why? Why didn't they reveal Esther's nationality, the fact that she was of Jewish origin? Could it be that they were afraid that something might happen to her? We're not told. But we can relate, can't we? We can relate because there are times in our lives where it's difficult to let our light shine. It's difficult for us to be Christians. Have you ever found yourself in a group of people? Maybe in a class, maybe at work, maybe in a social gathering where you seem to be the only one? It's easy, isn't it, to want to kind of hide our own identity, to not make any waves when we're outnumbered by people who seem to be at best apathetic toward Christianity and at worst enemies of the cross of Christ. It's easy for us to sweep our faith under the rug, too. It's why Jesus encourages us in his Sermon on the Mount to let our light shine before people, that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. God can take even the worst circumstances and make them turn out for good. He proves that in the story of Esther. And he'll prove it in your life, too. We can trust God. Put our lives in his hands, knowing that he is going to take care of everything for us. Well, Esther was chosen to be queen. And why she was chosen to be queen becomes clear in chapter 3, as we meet the final character, a man by the name of Haman. Let's take a look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and then verse 15. We read there, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Amaditha, the Agakite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pure, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. I'll jump ahead to verse 15. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Haman is an honored noble, higher, more highly honored than anyone else in the kingdom of Xerxes, but he had a little bee in his bonnet. The bee in his bonnet came from Mordecai, who refused to bow down and pay Haman honor. Could it be that this was Mordecai's faith at work, where he refused to bow down to anyone but God? We're not told. And yet Haman was filled with the idea of revenge, and not just revenge against Mordecai, but against all of Mordecai's people. He plotted the genocide of the entire Jewish race, trying to eliminate every Jewish person in the empire of King Xerxes. The way he chose this was probably his greatest mistake. He chose to leave it to chance. He cast a lot called a pure, and that pure decided that it was going to be in the 12th month. 11 months after it had been cast. Unknowingly and unwittingly, Haman had given God time to work this out for his good. But the king agreed. An edict went out that on that day, in that 12th month, all of the Jews in the province could be annihilated, destroyed, and killed. And the citadel of Susa, we're told, was bewildered, wondering where in the world this command had come from. And yet, once again, we see God's hand God's hand in raising Esther to the position that she was in and God's hand in letting the pure fall to the 12th month, giving the Jewish people time to get out out from under this edict. Well, let's take a look at how God brought it about in chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 to 3 and 9 to 14. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And jump down to verse 9 with me. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. It's understandable, isn't it? The mourning of the Jewish people and of Mordecai himself, they had been sold into death by this edict of the king at Haman's urging. And so Mordecai goes to the only place he knows where this might be changed. He goes to the palace. And he communicates through a messenger with Esther. There's this exchange that that he and Esther enter into. It's Mordecai that informs her all the things that have happened and that the Jewish people are in grave danger. And yet, the response comes back from Esther that, She's taking her life in her hands if she goes and appears before the king. And it had been 30 days since she had last been summoned. This is where Mordecai's answer is truly interesting, isn't it? He says to her in no uncertain terms, Whatever happens with you, Esther, there is going to be relief and deliverance for the Jewish people. Do you see his trust in God's promise? God's promise that from the Jewish people, there is going to be a Messiah who comes. There is no choice for God. Really, Mordecai is saying, we will be saved. But who knows, he says. Who knows, Esther, if God didn't guide the events of history to get you to be in this position, the position of queen, for such a time as this. For you to deliver the people of Israel right now. Esther comes to the conclusion that, It's worth risking her own life to save her people. And she promises, she promises Mordecai that she will go. Even going so far as to say, if I perish, I perish. There's six more chapters in the book of Esther and I encourage you to read the rest of the story, the conclusion to what happens. I suppose I could alert you that there's going to be a spoiler here, but I think you know it's not really a spoiler. You know exactly what happens. You know that God saves the Jewish people. That Esther appears before the queen, uh, before the king and the queen asks the king for protection for her people. There's some interesting other things that happen along the way. Haman's downfall is truly remarkable. And it all stems from a sleepless night that the king has. And he reads his own record, the record of his own reign, and discovers that nothing has been done for Mordecai when he had uncovered the plot against his life. There is a peculiar nature of the law of the Medes and Persians that we should discuss briefly. It is irrevocable. It cannot be changed. It cannot be repealed. Once a law is enacted, remember Daniel and the lion's den, it has to stay. And so the king couldn't simply repeal the law, but what he did is that he gave the order that the Jewish people could defend themselves, that they could protect themselves from the annihilation that was coming. And on the day that it happened, God provided exactly what they were hoping for, not just salvation from their enemies, but the preservation of the promise of a savior who would bring salvation for all people. Because of the pure that was cast, a a new festival arose for the people of of Israel, called Piram, still celebrated by many Jewish people today. And Mordecai himself was honored, given a place of authority in the kingdom because of all that he had done for the king. So what are we supposed to take from an account like this that happened 2,500 years ago? How, how does it matter to us today? Well, let's start with this. It's a reminder that history is truly his story. It's God's story. There is nothing that happens in history that God is unaware of. There's, there's nothing that happens that, that God isn't a part of, that he hasn't factored into his plan. It's a reminder that when God makes a promise, he'll deliver. And here we see the preservation of the Jewish people, meaning that God God's promise to send a Messiah was going to be fulfilled, that God was going to deliver on that promise, and a Savior was coming. But it's also our story too, isn't it? God's hand in Esther's life reminds us that that God is present, that God has a hand in our lives as well. And like Esther and Mordecai, there are times when we have to admit that we're flawed, that we're sinful, that we have warts too. And yet God reminds us that his grace, that his love for us in Jesus covers those sins. That the resurrection that we celebrated last week is our guarantee that yes, our sins are forgiven and that our life with our Lord in heaven is set. Reminds us also, doesn't it, that we have a purpose. That God has given us a purpose. He's given us a place in this world to be people of influence. To be people who have something to say. Have a hope to hold out to others. As I look around in our world during this pandemic, this coronavirus, I'm saddened. I'm saddened by how many people are panicking, How many people are afraid because death is a scary thing? Who knows that you and I as Christians aren't here for such a time as this. I know that death is scary. It's scary even for God's people. But it's even more scary when you have no idea of where you're going. And so many in our world are living with that uncertainty. You and I have the right perspective. No, we're not people who relish the idea of death. And yet we know that when death comes, it's a blessing because it's God's taking us from this life to an eternity with him. It's why the Apostle Paul could say this, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a beautiful perspective you and I have a chance to live with because we know where we're going. The calm and peace that you display during this time might lead others to ask questions. You might have an opportunity to share that common peace with others, to say, this is why I can live so confidently, even in the midst of the fears and the panic that is going on in this world. Because through Jesus, I know where I am going. What a beautiful message to share with others. What a beautiful encouragement to give to them. And maybe it is for such a time as this that God has placed you right where you are, with the people that you can influence in your family, at your work, wherever you interact with people. A couple passages that remind us that God knows everything that's going on. One we read earlier in Proverbs chapter 16, verse three, commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. Yes, your life is in God's hands. He knows the plans he has for you and he has plans to give you hope and a future. And then 2 Peter chapter 3, verse nine reminds us why God has us here in this life. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. But instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's desire. That everyone would know the truth about Jesus and join us for an eternity in the perfection of heaven. Some takeaways from our sermon today. First of all, number one, remember that history is his story. God shapes events to serve his purpose, not just in the life of Esther, but in your life and mine too. Secondly, God's greatest desire is for us and all people to be saved. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why Easter joy isn't for only one Sunday. We know our sins have been paid in full. We know our life in heaven is secure. And then finally, number three, Jesus' love for us means our story leads to life with him forever in heaven. That's the joy we have to share with others that we know where we're going, that we know what waits at the other, on the other side of life in this world, and it's life in perfect joy with our Savior. Maybe it's difficult sometimes to think about sharing that good news with others. Maybe uh, the people that are closest to us even are the ones that are the most difficult. Maybe we feel a little bit like Esther, not sure exactly if how to make this approach to the people that we want to share this good news with. And yet look at what God did for Esther. He made it possible for her to bring this message to the king and the king was able to issue an edict that preserved the Jewish people. You and I have that same confidence that we have this secret, the secret of of the meaning of life that's all about Jesus and what he's done for us. And because of what Jesus has done for us, where we are going, That same Jesus who loved us so much to give his life for us reminds us that we can do all this through Christ, through him who gives us strength. Pray for you, for the opportunities that God gives you to help others during this time and throughout the rest of your life. Maybe you won't be voted most likely to be queen or most likely to do any kinds of other things either. But God has given you your influence, the people around you. And maybe it starts with a simple phrase to someone, can I share with you? Can I share with you why I can live in these difficult days with such confidence, with such calm and such peace? And then you have a chance, an opportunity to share with them the greatest love of all, the love of our Savior Jesus. Maybe that's why God has us here right now in this time, for such a time as this. Amen.